right, today we are finishing our series in the book of Nehemiah. And our scripture reading is Nehemiah 13, 4 through 31. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistants, Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing us more wrath on now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people, 
and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Well, hey, good morning. Good to be with you. Well, um, we've been in this series for 12 weeks, and we have seen this rebuild happen. We've seen the city of Jerusalem rebuilt, the walls rebuilt. We've seen the people of God uh, recommit themselves. Last week, it was this high point, this dedication, this delight in all that God has done. And we get to the final chapter, and it ends in failure. You know, failure uh, is one of those things, right, that we don't like it, but sometimes and oftentimes it's failure that we actually learn the most. And as we consider this final chapter in Nehemiah, I think it really has an important lesson that we need in this moment. And it's simply this. How do we respond when God's people fail? Or how about this one, just to put it in contemporary terms. How do you respond when you see the failures of the church? You know, and some of you, uh, I say this and it's quite personal. Uh, you have been hurt by the church. Uh, others of you, perhaps freshly aware, even maybe more than ever, uh, in this moment of just the long-standing problems in the church. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, Russell Moore uh, resigned his post at the Southern Baptist Convention because of that denomination's failure to address issues like racism and sexual abuse. And Moore said this. He said, we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. And so here we are in this moment, right? And the question is, how do we respond in the midst of that? And Nehemiah 13 provides a way forward. I want to provide just three things this passage shows us. It gives wisdom to respond with a sober realism. Secondly, a hopeful participation and then thirdly, a humble longing. So let me pray and we'll, we'll step into those. Father, um, just pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. Well, a sober realism. You know, it would be fair to say that this final chapter is a failure of epic proportions. And each time that the people of God compromise here, the core issue is this, is they value something or someone greater than God. They have taken a gift of God and they have elevated that above God. And there's three ways we see this in this passage. The first is this, they value family over God. Look at verses four and five. It says this, now before this, Elisha, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Do you guys remember that name, Tobiah? He was the guy who at the beginning of this book was actually plotting alongside others to oppose the rebuilding project. In chapter 6, he was a part of the crew that hired Shemaiah, this prophet, to declare something false against Nehemiah so he would fall into sin. Tobiah! And now he's living in the temple. He's on the inside. He may have lost the battle, right? But he's now an inside of influence. And it's all because he's related to Eliashib, the priest. There's compromise. You know, several um, years ago, there was a prominent pastor of a large church whose son was up and coming in ministry, and there was a situation that occurred early on that should have been dealt with. But it was covered up. And years later, he would lead a church. And I won't even go into the details, but it was a tragic fallout. And it was all because early on of who he was related to. You know, um, is there any wonder that years later, Jesus would say this in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me, these are strong words, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not saying to kids, you should hate your parents, okay, just so you know that. Uh, but rather he was saying this, that your love for him should make your love for your parents look like hate because he's so worthy of it. And that here's what's happened. If, if, if that's not the case, then our lives unravel. They become disordered. And that's what's happened here. But secondly, we see the people of God valuing wealth over God. So look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. One of the things about the temple was you had Levites who served in the temple and they needed the offerings to be there because they didn't have fields. They didn't have ways of income. And yet here we see the people of God not supporting the work of the temple. So therefore, some of the workers can't be there and it ends up them having to go back to provide income for themselves. 
And this shows that there is a deeper problem going on. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's security for their own well-being. But whatever it is, they're not providing the resources needed. It's interesting that this actually section, if you go back to chapter 10, this was one of the exact things they promised they would do. They said, we are obligated to bring our tithes and our offerings, and they didn't. They were valuing wealth over God. And this continued with the breaking of the Sabbath. But look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Instead of observing the Sabbath rest, they begin to work on it. They begin to sell goods and services. This good day of rest, all of a sudden, it just can't be slipped by. They have to get that extra dollar. Again, this is a direct reversal of chapter 10 where they made a covenant not to do that. And yet they've compromised. Uh, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 24. He says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, it's been said, uh, rightly so, like, show me your budget and show me your calendar. And that will tell me what you really worship. Um, Back at our family meeting in January, um, one of the things that we shared was that RC's, our, our church's giving was not up to its budget for the year. And one of the things that I so appreciated about Scott and also Sam as they talked about this, the question wasn't so much like, how do we get the numbers up to here? But the question was a pause for us as a people of God to ask the question again, what might this be saying about our hearts? In other words, for this people of God and for even us today, it can be very easy to replace status and security that are ultimately found in God to be be replaced with wealth. But thirdly, we see they value relationships over God. And this is verses 23 and 24. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. You know, um, I'll say a couple things about this. One is, the problem was not marrying someone of a different race. Um, there's actually examples in the Old Testament of that happening. The issue was marrying someone of a different religion, The mention of children not knowing the language of the people was not some narrow tribalism, but it's because they didn't know the covenants of God. They didn't know the word of God. They didn't know the worship of God. D.A. Carson makes this statement that one might imagine in the midst of that people these cries, but I love him. Or even some others muttering something like this, you know, the Israelite religion, it's, it's a bit narrow, you know. I don't go for that. I'm kind of a spiritual person. 
And I find the religion of the Ammonites deeply meaningful. What are we to do with this failure? How do we respond to this failure of epic proportion? Let me put it this way. At the end of the day, one of the reasons why this chapter is here is simply because this happens. This happens. In fact, if you take a scope of Scripture time and time again, God's people fail. Go back for a moment to the book of Judges and you see the spiraling of God's people. Or go to the very end of Scripture in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. There's seven letters to seven churches, and five out of the seven are close to no longer being a church. This happens. And so it ought to create in us a sober realism, a humble posture. Uh, In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author there writes this. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer to attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Notice the, the book of Hebrews is saying this, that it's like being on a boat, If you've ever been on a boat and you've stopped the engine or you've stopped rowing, what happens? You get carried wherever the tide goes. And you don't even realize you're moving until sometimes it's too late. You wonder, how are you going to get back to the shore? And let me put it this way, in our current cultural moment, in the post-Christian secular West, that places the self at the center of everything. It's easy. It's easy to drift. The same things, don't you realize? Sometimes I can read Scripture and I can um, easily look down, particularly in the Gospels, you look at how often the disciples mess up. But when you even read the book of Nehemiah and even chapter 13, Think about it. They chose family over God, wealth over God, relationships over God. Don't you understand how easy that is to do? In fact, if we're honest, that's why we come here each week to confess. Because it's most oftentimes the case. So Nehemiah, this failure, he calls us to a sober realism, to in one sense, examine ourselves and not drift. But it also calls us to a hopeful participation. You know, we learn in verse 6 that Nehemiah, after serving for approximately 12 years on this project, has been back with the king. He hasn't been here when all this has been going on. And he shows up. And the question is, what is he going to do? I mean, think about it for a moment working on something for 12 years, giving all of what you have, and you show up, and this is what the people do with it? Completely compromise? I mean, let's be honest. At some point, wouldn't you consider, like, just opting out? Like, I'm done. Like, I'm done with this. 
they've messed up so often. Like, I'm just going to go back home and blog about it. Like, I'm not, you know, let me check out. Let me, let me get on the outside here and just get cynical. Let me deconstruct that people. That's not what Nehemiah does. In each situation, Nehemiah moves, moves towards God's people. He moves towards them. He doesn't check out. He doesn't say I'm through with them. Because of his love for God and the love for his people, he enters in. And not only does he enter in, but he doesn't compromise. Nehemiah confronts. He takes action. He hopes that his actions will be helping to restore this community back to a faithful relationship with their God. I mean, just to go through it briefly, in verse 8, he's so angry, he takes Tobiah's stuff and just throws it out. I mean, how fun would that be? I mean, just here's your lounger chair, it's out. And he replaces the vessels of God back where they should be. In verse 11, he confronts the officials for the temple being neglected. And he appoints new ones who are reliable, who will take care of the tithes and offerings and make sure they're distributed well so the Levites can continue their work. In verse 17, Nehemiah confronts the nobles and calls them out for allowing others to sell on the Sabbath. He sets up gates, doesn't let anybody in. In verse 25, Nehemiah confronts and he curses and he beats some of them. I'll comment on that later. But those who allowed their sons and daughters to marry people who didn't worship God, he has them make an oath that they won't do this. He even throws out the high priest's son who had married their enemy's daughter. What we see from Nehemiah's response is this hopeful participation, this hopeful confrontation he confronts with the hope of God's people being restored. You know, um, in Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, he has this model of know, excuse me, love, know, speak, and do in terms of ministry. And in the speak portion, Tripp points out, this is in chapter 11 of the book, that as a Christian, there's a call to confront and rebuke. And, and Tripp explains that rebuke is an act of patient, committed love in which a person speaks the truth in love. And he writes this, being nice and acting out of love are not the same thing. Our culture puts a high premium on being tolerant and polite. We seek to avoid uncomfortable moments, so we see but do not speak. We go so far as to convince ourselves that we are not speaking because we love the other person, when in reality we fail to speak because we Lack love. True love is not offensively intrusive or rude, but the Bible repudiates covering sin with a facade of silence. It teaches that those who love will speak even if it creates tense, upsetting moments. We fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. We fear others misunderstanding us or being angry with us. We are afraid of what others will think. End quote. I don't know about you, but that is personally convicting. That is personally 
challenging. Let me put it this way. What if our community grew beyond niceness? Uh, What if in our city groups we grew in relationship with one another in which, in one sense, yeah, we came and we shared observations about the text. Yeah, we, we talked about how the Tar Heels won last night, had a great casual conversation about it. Do that. But, but what if our city group life got a little bit deeper? What if there was deeper spiritual friendship in such a way that every time something was said or we heard, it wasn't merely met with an okay but sometimes it's actually met with prayerful, deliberate challenge of one another. Hebrews chapter 3 puts it this way. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called the day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, Hebrews is saying biblical community It's one in which we need each other. Note that language of deceitfulness of sin. In other words, it doesn't show up at your door and say, I'm going to ruin your life. It deceives you. You don't see it. And that's why you need others who can. But oftentimes, right, we we lack love. We love our comfort. We love ourselves. And so we are quiet. Listen, I'm not inviting you to be the next time at City Group for you to blow up your friend. Like, you've been like, I have something to say to you, but I will say this. Who are you walking next to? And perhaps even this who's walking next to you? Because you need others. I need others. Thirdly, <clears throat> this final chapter <clears throat> gives us a humble longing. I don't know if you notice this, but there is a hallowness uh, or even a surface shallowness to Nehemiah's reforms. Um, one pastor of my friends puts it this way, he beats people and rips out their hair. An act of public shaming. He forces the people who'd marry their children to foreigners to promise not to do it, but we all know how that's going to work out. It's only a matter of time before they go back to what they were doing before. In other words, this This book ends in failure because Nehemiah does not have the strength or resources, even though he's sacrificed so much, even though he's given so much of his life, he doesn't have what it takes. He can't ultimately bring about lasting change. And it's particularly noteworthy that this is the last chronological book in the Old Testament. The last one. And then there's 400 years of silence. And then someone arrives who's the true and better Nehemiah. One who, like Nehemiah, gets angry. Remember that one scene where this man enters the temple, makes a whip, and he overturns tables 
because the place where people could come and meet God was being turned into profit. And he kicks them out. But one who, like Nehemiah, confronts religious leaders of the day who have hardened their hearts so much that when he heals a man on the Sabbath, they want to convict him. They're angry because he has worked on the Sabbath. They have extended the rules beyond what actually God gave the gift for. And yet one who rather than coming and giving a beating would take a beating. Would come and willingly lay himself out on the cross because of our failures, because of our sin, so that we might have life and forgiveness and restoration and relationship with God. And here's what happens. When you place your faith in Him, the Spirit of God indwells you and begins that work of transforming you from the inside out, not the outside in. And yet, as we wait, we wait for the day in which He'll return and He'll ultimately renew everything. And there will be no more waywardness and there will be no more sin. And yet even now, as we wait, let me put it this way, we ought to long for renewal. We ought to long for renewal in the day that we live. Um, back in the... Um, Around the time of the American Revolution, you may not know this, but the church and our country were in a downward spiral. The chief justice at the time, John Marshall, wrote to a bishop and said this, the church is too far gone ever to be redeemed. Uh, Voltaire said this, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years' time. A poll was taken during that time at Harvard indicating there was not one believer in the whole student body. It was taken at Princeton, only two believers. At Dartmouth, there were anti-Christian plays. Mind you, these are colleges set up by Christians, these institutions, and they could not be found. That was the state of the day. Now, how did things change? Like, what happened then? Well, the same pattern we saw at the beginning of Nehemiah, and the same pattern we see throughout Scripture, it begins with this, examining ourselves before the living God, confessing our sins, and pleading for His mercy. There's a whole story to this, but in New England, here's one aspect. There was a Baptist pastor named Isaac Bacchus, who was a man of prayer. In 1794, he set out a plea for prayer of every denomination, and they set aside the first Monday of each month to pray. And from that, it led to the Second Great Awakening, which led to the whole missionary movement and the abolition of slavery. D.A. Carson writes this, Who knows what God will do for us in our time? 
We cannot be certain whether God will visit us with more judgment as we deserve in the Western world or visit us with great mercy and transforming power. End quote. But regardless how he responds, we are called to faithfully endure with a sober realism that examines ourselves, with a hopeful participation that doesn't just blog about it, but lovingly confronts. And thirdly, with a humble longing that he would do it again. And in the end, keeping our eyes faithfully enduring on the one who promises that he will return again and bring it about ultimately. Let's pray. Lord, help us to respond with wisdom to failure. Grant us grace to pay close attention to your Son and not to drift. Father, grant us courage to walk vulnerably with others and both invite correction as well as challenge those in our midst. Lastly, we pray for mercy. May your Spirit search our hearts, see if there is any offensive way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. And would you change us so that we might walk in your light for the sake of your name. Amen.